what story are you a part of? We all, all of us live out of some story. We all live out of some narrative. Influential philosopher, secular philosopher, Alistair McIntyre said that before we can learn what we are supposed to do and be about, we have to learn what story we're a part of. And the Christian faith, the Bible gives us a capital S story, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ is at the heart of that story. That's what Easter's all about. I'm glad you're here. Uh, some of you are here and you haven't been to church in quite some time. Thank you for coming. Glad you're here. I know it can be a little bit intimidating to come back to church after not having been in church in some time. So thank you for being here. We're glad you're here. But I also want to issue a challenge to you. Let me challenge you to come back to this place. We'll be here next week as well for three weeks. Come back for three weeks. Commit to one month of church and just see what the Lord might do. We're going through the Gospel of Matthew together. It's what we do as a church. We just walk through books of the Bible, and we're getting to a really meaningful, important section of the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus is about to be handed over. We're going to have crucifixion and resurrection. You've ever wondered, what is it all about? Well, come back for a month and see what God might do. This morning, we're in 1 Corinthians 15. So if you've got a Bible or a phone, turn there. You want to borrow one of our Bibles there underneath the chair in front of you. It'll be page 904. 1 Corinthians, we're going jumping in at the end here, chapter 15. And this is a letter. It's written by the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul to a local church in Corinth. And this church, this church in Corinth, was confused about all kinds of things. I mean, literally, basically each chapter, Paul's going from one issue to the other to the other to the other, trying to correct their theology and their practice. The short of it was that they had lost sight of Christ. They got distracted from the main thing. That's why Paul opens up the letter in chapter 2 and says, I've resolved to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And here at the very end of the letter, chapter 15, we learn the root of all their problems. They were confused about the resurrection. They were confused about the body and its future. And so that's why there's so many body issues in the letter. There's sex, and there's sex in marriage, and there's food, and then there's marriage itself. There's all kinds of bodily issues. Well, they were confused. Because from the earliest days of the Christian faith, there's this heresy that came in, and it still plagues us today. We now know it as Gnosticism. Gnosticism is this view. It's a complicated view, but the short of it is that material things are bad, but spiritual things are good. And so they would downplay material things like the body. They would deny marriage. They would deny sex within marriage. And they denied the resurrection, which Paul now addresses in chapter 15. So let's consider six points together from 1 Corinthians 15, 12 to 58. Number one, the absolute necessity of the resurrection. The absolute necessity of the resurrection, verses 12 to 19. 1 Corinthians 15, 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith is in vain. We're even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. 
Then those also who have fallen asleep, it's a metaphor in the Bible for death, those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. The absolute necessity of the resurrection, verse 12, notice it says, if Christ is proclaimed as risen. The resurrection of Jesus is at the heart of the Christian message. It was right from the beginning. I skipped a few verses, but look at chapter 15, verse 1. This is how he starts summarizing the heart of the Christian faith, summarizing the gospel message. He says, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel. Here it is, the good news. This is the heart of it. I preached to you in which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Here he defines it. I delivered to you as of first importance. What I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And then he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. And then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Most of whom are still alive. Though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James. And then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Christ is proclaimed. It's been the heart of Christian proclamation right from the very beginning. That he was raised. And not only that he was raised, but he appeared. He appeared to Cephas and to the apostles. And then more than 500 people together. Now, there's a lot of actually liberal theology in the city of Abilene. Believe it or not. We're conservative socially for the most part. But there's a lot of theologically liberal people. And there's actually a lot of people even in this city that say, you know what? The resurrection is not actually historical. You know, Christianity's good and all, but this isn't a historical thing. And a lot of people will say it was just a hallucination. They didn't actually see the risen Christ. But listen, 500 people, that would have to mean that 500 people had the same hallucination at the same time. It's unlikely. And most of them were still alive. Paul's like, look, you have questions? Go talk to them. This was a public event with public people. I'm writing to you in a public document. Go ask them. Go consult them for corroboration. They're still alive, most of them. Go ask Joe Bob and Cindy and Mary Lou or whatever their names may have been. They saw it. Friends, if this is made up, if, if the Christian faith is a made-up religion, you don't do this sort of thing. You don't say in a public document, 500 people saw the risen Christ. No, you say, you know, he, some angel was revealed to like, to like one person, right? You, you go more covert. That way it can't be proven wrong so easily. You go Joseph Smith style, right? I'm, listen, the angel told me I saw the golden plates with my own eyes. I forgot to bring them. I forgot to bring them, but trust me, I saw them. I told five of my homies, for real. You keep it small, not 500 eyewitnesses that could go be talked to. There's really no other way, friends, to explain the launch and the explosive growth of the Christian faith other than the fact that a man said he would die and walk out of a tomb and then did just that. And as we know from the Bible and from history, many of these eyewitnesses were willing to give their life for the sake of the risen Christ. They wouldn't do that for a fabrication. As Pascal put it, I believe those witnesses that get their throats cut. A lie wouldn't produce that kind of self-sacrifice. 
Right? How does Shailen put it? The disciples weren't stupid guys who would ruin their lives for what they knew was a lie. That would be beyond ridiculous. No, no, no. It was a historical event that could be talked about, that was seen, that was known. It was a historical fact. In fact, the resurrection of Jesus is much more fully attested to than most other significant ancient events. It's history. Carl F.H. Henry, he was a Baptist theologian uh, of the 20th century. He's been dead a little while now. He was one of the founding editors of Christianity Today. Christianity Today started as a really solid magazine. Not so trustworthy anymore, but it was in his day. And he was talking about one time there was an event where another uh, uh, leading, very, very famous uh, liberal theologian from Germany named Karl Barth had come to the United States. And here's how Dr. Henry describes the encounter. He says, the university invited 200 religious leaders to a luncheon honoring Barth, at which guests were invited to stand, identify themselves, and pose a question. A Jesuit scholar from either Catholic University or Georgetown, can remember, voiced the first question. Aware that the initial queries often set the mood for all subsequent discussion, I asked the next question, identifying myself as Carl Henry, editor of Christianity Today. I continued, the question, Dr. Bart, concerns the historical factuality of the resurrection of Jesus. I pointed to the press table and noted the presence of leading religion editors or reporters representing the United Press, Religious News Service, Washington Post, Washington Star, and other media. If these journalists had their present duties in the time of Jesus, I asked, was the resurrection of such a nature that covering some aspect of it would have fallen into their area of responsibility? Was it news, I asked, in the sense that the man in the street understands news? Karl Barth liberal theologian from Germany, became angry. Pointing at me and recalling my identification, he asked, did you say Christianity today or Christianity yesterday? The audience, largely non-evangelical professors and clergy, roared with delight. When countered unexpectedly in this way, one often reaches for a scripture verse, and so I replied, assuredly out of biblical context, yesterday, today, and forever. The resurrection has always been at the heart of the Christian faith. It's grounded upon an event. It's a historical faith. Right from the beginning, the earliest creed after the Bible is the Apostles' Creed. And the church has confessed this for 2,000 years. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, was buried. He descended to Hades the third day. He rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. The Bible teaches it. History attests to it. And friends, if Jesus rose from the dead, you have to accept Everything he said can't remain neutral. Jesus demands decision. But somehow these Corinthians had got confused. And so Paul asked, listen, if Christ is proclaimed as risen from the dead, how can some say there's no resurrection? Some of these Christians were denying it. But if there's no resurrection, then Jesus is not raised. And if Jesus is not raised, throw the whole thing out. We're done. It's over. And there briefly, Paul lays out seven dreadful implications 
if there's no resurrection. Their preaching is in vain. Their faith is in vain. If Jesus is not risen, the faith means nothing. It's vanity. Number three, they misrepresent God because that's what they've been preaching. Number four, their faith, again, is futile. He just wants to drive home the point. Number five, you're still in your sins. If Jesus has not been raised, your faith means nothing. The cross means nothing. And you're not forgiven. The cross is bad news without a resurrection. You remain guilty. You're still an enemy of God. Why? Because the resurrection is proof of the cross. It's the stamp of approval, divine approval on effective substitutionary atonements. Six, those who've already died, they're lost. And then seventh, Christians are to be pitied if there is no resurrection. Now, notice the logic of verse 19. Look at it again. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, if there's no resurrection, we are of all people most to be pitied. What does that mean? you resonate with that? Christians are those who follow Christ. Christians are those who've centered their life around Christ. They are those who have radically altered their life when they encountered Christ. Their thoughts, their lives, their time, their money. It's all about now the lordship of Jesus Christ. They have put all chips in in following Christ. And so if there's no resurrection of the dead, they've wasted their life on a myth. And therefore, it's pitiful. You know, non-Christians deny the resurrection, obviously. And I would just ask you, do your non-Christian friends and family and neighbors, do they pity you? Maybe a, a good goal would be to gain some pity from our non-Christian friends. Do they look at your life and think, that person is wasting their life on Jesus? Or do they look at you and think, yeah, they live just like me, so if there's no resurrection, no big deal. The absolute necessity, number two, Christ is the first fruits, verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. He has been raised. He did walk out of the tomb. God raised him from the dead. As the first fruits. What does that mean? Most of us aren't farmers. Farmers get it easily, right? The first fruit is that real part of the harvest that could be enjoyed now. It comes first, it comes before. It represents the same quality or character that the rest will have, and it's a promise or a pledge of more of the same kind to come. Jesus' resurrection is the guarantee that ours is coming. As his was, so will ours be. He's the first fruits. Look at verse 21. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ, the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Here Paul gives us a glimpse of how all of history is structured, redemptive history is structured around two atoms. Theologians call this federal headship or covenantal headship. Adam is the federal or covenant head of all humanity. And the last Adam is the covenant head of all the new humanity. By Adam came death, but by Christ comes the resurrection of the dead. In Adam all die, but in Christ shall all be made alive. Adam represents all humanity. Everyone's born in Adam. 
Christ represents all who put their trust in him. And all people, every one of us, everyone in this room, everyone on planet earth is either in Adam or in Christ. Death, guilt, condemnation, righteousness, forgiveness, life. I wonder where are you? Who is your representative? It is one or the other. In Adam, we went to the grave. In Christ, we walk out. Christ is the first fruits. Third, Christ is the risen and reigning king. Verse 24 to 28, Christ is the risen and reigning king. Paul gives us a little end times chronology here in the middle of this chapter. Since the general resurrection, our resurrection comes at the end. Verse 24 says, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and authority and power. For he must reign until he's put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Notice the order. We have the ascension. Jesus is installed at the right hand of God. And he must reign from there until he's put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy is death. Then comes the end when the son will hand the kingdom to the father after He's destroyed every rule and authority and power. Jesus has all authority at his ascension. And now he's bringing, as we pray in the Lord's Prayer, his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven, slowly but surely, like leaven. Pretty simple and straightforward, according to Paul, right? Ascension to the right hand, reign, return. And Jesus is reigning now. He's been installed as king. He's been enthroned as the Lord of lords. He's reigning, and he will reign, reign until every last enemy is subdued. Who are his enemies? Well, that was us before Christ. And if you're outside of Christ, that's you. Anyone opposed to him, anyone who's not trusted in him, anyone who's not submitted to his lordship, anyone who's not given terms of surrender through faith and repentance. That's how Jesus subdues his enemies. It's through the gospel. Once we were enemies, now we're friends. That's the heart of the good news of the Christian faith is that God is holy, created us. He's holy and loving, but we're sinners. It happens from the earliest age, from really the infant years when that little baby red face curls that back. You will not change my diaper. I know better than you. That defiance comes early, doesn't it? It's because we're born in Adam. By nature, we're sinful, and it doesn't take long for that nature to come out. And that's a problem. If God is holy and we are sinful, something has to bridge the gap. Someone has to bridge the gap. That's the worst news in the universe is that God is holy and will punish all sin. God will not wipe any sin under the rug. He will judge the smallest, the widest lie. Why? Because he's infinitely holy. That's the bad news from which we get the good news. He didn't leave us there. He sent his son, lived the perfect life that you and I were called to do and could not do. He died a substitutionary death in our place. We're the ones who deserve to die. We're the ones who deserve the penalty. Jesus took the penalty in our place on the cross, and he didn't stay in the grave. He was raised. 
That's the heart of the Christian faith, friends. That's the gospel. That's the good news. Right now, if you're not in Christ, you are an enemy. And the wrath of God is upon you. But you know what? Today, you can change that if you trust Christ. Faith and repentance. Turn from sin. Turn to Christ. You can do it right in your chair. If you've got questions, all the members of Southside will be chomping at the bit to answer those questions. As will I. Don't leave here an enemy of God. Jesus must reign until he's subdued all his enemies and the last enemy is death. Through the resurrection, Jesus defeats death. That's what Easter is about. Look at verse 29. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus if the dead are not raised? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. What is up with this baptism of the dead stuff? Nobody knows. <laughs> There's like 200 interpretations of what this notoriously puzzling verse means. It's the only place in the Bible it occurs. Paul just reports it. He doesn't approve it. He doesn't endorse it. He doesn't command it. I think it could mean people who were spiritually dead, like Ephesians 2, who come to faith or made alive, might mean that. It might mean people who were baptized on behalf of Christians who had died before they were able to be baptized. At the end of the day, we don't know. But at the end of the day, the point is, it's pointless. Whatever it is, it's pointless if God will not raise the corpses of believers. As is Christian suffering, it's pointless if God will not raise the corpses of Christians. All the threats, pointless, in vain. Paul faced threats all the time, daily danger of death, fighting beasts. Jesus think he means his opponents. It's all pointless. All the hardship, all the suffering, all the faithfulness is pointless if there is no resurrection from the dead. Look at verse 33. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins Good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. What a fascinating verse. Sort of seems out of place, doesn't it? A chapter defending the theological necessity, the historical reality of the resurrection. He drops in this little proverb about keeping good company. Actually, I think it's really, really important. The reason these Christians were doubting the resurrection is because they were hanging out with people who were denying the resurrection. Listen to the warning. Do not be deceived. That warning is there, friend, because you and I have the capability, the potential of being deceived. He wouldn't warn us if that weren't the case. Don't be deceived, Christian. Bad company will corrupt good character. Who are you hanging out with? Who are your friends? It will affect you. It will affect your character. Now, of course, it doesn't mean we shouldn't be friends with non-Christians, but we need to have our eyes open. We need to realize that they will influence us and not always for good. Like he said back in 1 Corinthians 5, little leaven leavens the whole lump, cleanse out the leaven. Let me just share a word 
with Christian parents. You know, besides you, there are really three main teachers for your students. Hopefully your primary, there are three main teachers. We often just think of our teachers, but there's actually two more. Of course, there are teachers, whoever it is that is in front of our children teaching them. Teachers will obviously influence in them, absolutely. Also, whatever curriculum that they're using will also influence them. You have the teacher, you have the curriculum, but probably the most underrated teacher of your children is their peers. Peer pressure is massive. I were to ask some of you about some of your, you know, elementary, junior high teachers or textbooks, you probably wouldn't be able to tell me much, but if I asked you about your friends, you could talk a lot. Peer pressure is massively influential. Proverbs 13, 20, whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. And so young people, be careful who you hang out with. Hear, hear the word of the Lord for you today. The Lord says, do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good character. And parents, let me just urge you to be tight. Be tight about who your kids hang out with. Lest they end up denying the resurrection of the dead. The resurrection of Christ. Paul says, wake up. Don't be fooled. Stop sinning. Fourth. Resurrection bodies. Paul describes the nature of resurrection bodies. Look at verse 35. Well, someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he's chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there's one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is one of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory for the sun and another glory for the moon and another glory for the stars. For stars, a star differs from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. Thus it is written... The first man, Adam, became a life, a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it's not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we've borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of of heaven. He's saying resurrection bodies are different. They're different than our current earthly bodies. And notice the contrast that he gives here about this body that we have now and the body that we will have at the resurrection. Perishable, imperishable. Dishonor, glory. Weakness, power. Natural, spiritual. First Adam, last Adam. Mortal, immortal. 
Now, when Paul says spiritual body here, he doesn't mean like disembodied, like no body. That's not what he means. It's a little confusing because of the language he uses, but there's a certain form of an adjective here he's using that's often used, mostly used to refer to the power or the energy that animates someone or something. And so the resurrection body, it's going to be a physical body. That's the whole point. But it's spiritual in that it is animated by the Spirit, empowered by the Holy Spirit, unlike where we are today without having glorified bodies yet. He said, Adam was the first man from the dust over the first creation. The last Adam is the second man from heaven over the second creation. Jesus is the head of the new creation, and he brings it to pass in his first coming. Remember how Jews thought about resurrection. You had creation, this age, and at some point, In the last days, God would send out his spirit upon all his people and raise all his people from the dead. And then you have the age to come. It was very linear. Jewish view was this age, resurrection spirit, the age to come. Jesus yanks God's future into the present. What they did not expect was one man to be raised in the middle of history. Well, that's Jesus, the first fruits, the firstborn from the dead. And so Jesus' resurrection brings God's future into our present. And so now we live in this overlap of the ages, this age and the age to come. And the resurrection signifies the reality that the blessings of the age to come have arrived. Fifth, Christ is the victor. Look at verse 50. I'll tell you this, brothers. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ is the victor who will change our bodies. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom, meaning these corruptible bodies, these bodies that are transient, that are heading for death. Can I get an amen? The body in its present form. But for those who are alive when he comes, their mortal bodies will be transformed into immortal bodies in the twinkling of an eye, in the blink of an eye, immediately transforms. Here's how Philippians 3.20 puts it. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. He will change our bodies. He will glorify us. The Christian faith is pro-body. It is pro-matter. It's pro-material. It is anti-gnostic. Heaven will not merely be these clouds and fatty, floaty, harpy babies. Heaven will be embodied. We will have bodies on this earth, but this earth purified, this earth redeems. 
I love the way Romans 8 puts it, Romans 8, 19, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Heaven will be the redemption of our body and the redemption of the created order. The Bible doesn't teach salvation from the world, but the salvation of the world. Can you imagine? It's hard to imagine this world and this body and this life without sin, isn't it? Can you imagine? New bodies, no aches, no tumors, no cancer, no acne, no disease, no sickness. Spiritually and physically healed. D.A. Carson says, I'm not suffering from anything a good resurrection won't fix. <laughs> Charles Spurgeon tells the story of a couple of Protestant martyrs. They were martyred by the Catholic Church for their faith, for believing the gospel under the, queen, the, the reign of Queen Mary. One was lame and the other was blind. Burned for their faith and as the fire was lit, the lame man yelled to the blind man, Courage, brother! This fire will cure us both. New bodies, no curse, resurrection. Verse 56 is also kind of interesting, isn't it? Look at it again. Out of nowhere, he brings up the law. He says, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. Anytime Paul uses law, 98% of the time, he means the old covenant, the old covenant law. says the power of sin is the law. In 2 Corinthians 3, he calls the law a ministry of death, a ministry of condemnation. Why? Why does he call it this? Well, because we can't keep it. We can't keep the law. And so it condemns. Romans 4.15, the law brings wrath. You know what we need? We don't need law. Fundamentally, we need grace. And the powers of law and sin and death, they all go together in Paul's theology, and Christ takes care of all three. This is such good news, isn't it? Especially for us de death-fearing Americans. It's redemption from death. It's freedom from death. Death is universal. Why is death universal? Because sin is universal. The wages of sin is death. The only certainties are taxes and death. Ten out of ten die. Doesn't matter how hard you strive or how healthy you are, consumers of cabbage and kale will meet the same fate as those, fate as those who eat red meat and ice cream. Death is the great leveler. It's the great equalizer. It's coming. As one Puritan said, against this arrest, there is no bail. Spurgeon said, here is the history of the grass, sown, grown, blown, mown, gone. And the history of man's not much more. Augustine said that we live a dying life. Every birthday is one less year. Every beating pulse decreases the total number that we're given. 
It's a daily depletion. Everything we have will one day be lost. If this life is all there is, the dreadful reality of death is depressing. Job 18 calls death the king of terrors. Job 14 says man is few of days and full of trouble. We are so scared to death of death. You can see that by where we die, how we try to delay death, and how we talk about death. Think about where we die. You know, dying in hospitals is actually a new phenomenon in world history. You know, where historically humans died, the living room of their home with their family. Now we hide it away. We don't talk about it. There's a secret back door unless somebody might see a corpse. We try to delay it with all kinds of gimmicks. Encourage you as you watch television. Actually, I encourage you not to watch television. But if you watch television, watch the advertisements and try to discern how many of the advertisements are trying to delay the inevitable, trying to keep you from dying. All sorts of gimmicks, increasingly sophisticated medical technology where there's always, always, always something else we can do to try to prevent the inevitable. Famous Hindu physician Atul Gawande, he's got a book called Being Mortal. He says this, our, our every, he's not a Christian, he says our every impulse is to fight. It's to die with chemo in our veins or a tube in our throats or fresh sutures in our flesh. The fact that we may be shortening or worsening the time we have left hardly seems to register. We imagine that we can wait until the doctors tell us there's nothing more they can do, but rarely is there nothing more that doctors can do. They can give toxic drugs of unknown efficacy, operate to try to remove part of the tumor, put in a feeding tube if a person can't eat. There's always something. We try to delay it. We try to fight it. Medicare spends one-fourth of its money, one-fourth of its money on the 5% of patients who are in their final year of life. Most of that in the last couple months, which is pointless. We try to delay it, and we don't talk about it, and we do talk about it. We change the vocabulary, right? We try to soften it a little bit, and so we don't have funerals anymore. We have celebrations of life. Elmwood, it's not a graveyard anymore. It's now Elmwood Memorial Park. It's no longer a death certificate. It's a vital statistics form. It's no longer an undertaker. It's a funeral director. We're not buried anymore. We're interred. We fear death. That's why all people fear death. Don't you? Do you fear death? You know what Easter's about? You don't have to. There's a solution. This is really the unique contribution of Christianity. I love this quote by sociologist Peter Berger. He says, the power of religion depends in the last resort on the credibility of the banners it puts in the hands of men as they stand before death. Or more accurately, as they walk inevitably toward it. The banners that Christianity puts in your hands are so powerful as you walk towards your end. Because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, death is dead. It's an enemy, we see that, but it's a defeated enemy. This is why Christ came. In many ways, this is the heartbeat of Christianity. Listen to the way Hebrews 2 puts it. 
Why did Jesus come? Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, Jesus himself likewise partook of the same things. He put on a body that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Every person fears death. Christians have been freed from the fear of death. Why? Because Jesus came to defeat the one who has the power of death. For Christians, death has no victory. Death has lost its sting. Because it's not the end of the story for us. It's really just the beginning. 70, 80, 90, 100 years, it's a blip. For the Christian, life doesn't end at death. It truly is only the beginning of your life. Do you believe that? Listen to the way the Apostle John describes what it's going to be like for Christians. He says, Revelation 21, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Can you imagine? No tears. He himself will wipe away your tears. No mourning, no crying, no death. It's lost its sting. Why? Thanks be to God, because Christ has given us the victory. Christ has come. Christ has died for sinners. Christ was raised. Christ will come again. In him, we have the victory, verse 57. In him, we're more than conquerors. And death cannot separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. In fact, if you love the Lord Jesus, death has turned from an enemy to gain. Philippians 1, because you get to be with him. 6, why does it all matter? Verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Therefore, what is the therefore, therefore? In light of everything he said, in light of all this dense defense of the resurrection, because of all that, keep laboring in the Lord. Because of the resurrection, it won't be in vain. Because of the resurrection, you're not to be pitied. So keep going. Be steadfast, immovable, dear, suffering and struggling saint. Let nothing move you. The tomb is empty. The right man is at the helm. Give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. The tomb is empty. The throne is occupied. Victory is secured. You have the word of God. You have the spirit of God. Jesus is alive. Let's get to work. What is the work here? What is the work of the Lord? Is it anything we do? I think he's being more specific. In fact, back in chapter 3, he spoke of the work being evangelism. Right here in the context, look at chapter 16, verse 10. He says, when Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he's doing, here it is, the work of the Lord as I am. Timothy 
was an example of what the work of the Lord is. Look at verse 15. I heard you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia and that they've devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these and to every fellow worker and laborer. Everywhere Paul uses this language about the work of the Lord, the labor of the Lord, he's talking about what we do to advance the gospel among unbelievers and build up believers. He's talking about evangelization and edification. He's talking about establishing new churches and edifying the saints in your local church. And so because of the resurrection, your work in evangelism and discipleship, it will bear fruit for eternity. It's not in vain. So be steadfast. Keep going. And so let me just ask you, are you living for the risen and reigning Lord? The basic confession of the Christian is Jesus is Lord. Is Jesus the Lord of your life? Not asking what you do on Sunday mornings. I'm asking, is Jesus the Lord of your life, your whole life? He's not Lord of all. He's not Lord at all. What story are you living out of and what's at the center of that story? Is it you or is it him? Russian writer Leo Tolstoy, he wrote this. He says, my question that which at the age of 50 brought me to the verge of suicide was the simplest of questions lying in the soul of every man. A question without an answer to which one cannot live. It was, what will come of what I am doing today or tomorrow? What will come of my whole life? Why should I live? Why wish for anything or do anything? It can also be expressed thus. Is there any meaning in my life that the inevitable death awaiting me does not destroy? I would just ask you, is there any meaning in your life that the inevitable death will not take from you? Jim Elliott, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Will your life end up being in vain? Go all in. Follow God fully. You know, half-hearted Christianity is the worst kind of Christianity because it is no Christianity. Have Christ all the way. He's risen. He's reigning. He's coming again.